Faith in the news media has been challenged, making it even harder to get stories told. The Friday Reporter podcast was created to help audiences better understand the media by hosting journalists who will answer the questions to which we need answers. Join me every Friday to hear more. Well, hello, and thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast. Today's guest is a nominee, uh, nominated by his friend uh, and colleague at the Philadelphia Inquirer. Today, I'm with Chris Brennan from the Philadelphia Inquirer, who is a political writer and columnist with the paper. And I can't wait to get into it because there's a lot of 24 to discuss and a lot of other things, including maybe some cheesesteak conversations. So, Chris, thanks so much for being with me. Glad to be here. So you've got to tell me, I mean, I did a little bit of homework and I know a little bit about your background. It seems like Pennsylvania is, uh, is pretty much been your uh, home base for some time. But talk to me a little bit about how you got to be where you are today. Well, I like to say that I was born and raised on this stuff. Uh, I was born in Philadelphia. My grandfather was a Philadelphia cop. My dad worked for the city. So I'm essentially the first generation in three that doesn't take home a city paycheck. But you know, I grew up listening to this stuff around the dinner table, uh, and so it comes natural to me. And there's no shortage of stories uh, coming out of Philadelphia. I mean, I love it so much, and I, I having grown up in the uh, in well neighborhoods not that far away from where you are, I have a great appreciation for the city itself. Politics, though. Uh, now, I mean, even in the short time, you've been at it for some time now, but it's evolved and changed so much uh, in the coverage that you do. Tell me a little bit about um, how it is you're doing your reporting. I know you've got uh, th- like a daily reporting that you're doing, but then also you've got a column too. Talk to me a little bit about your process and how that works. Sure. So uh, the column runs every Friday and that's called Clout. And that's been around for going on 25 years. It was actually launched by my uh, former mentor at, at the Philadelphia Daily News, Gar Joseph, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, and I took over it uh, uh, at the Daily News. And then uh, the Daily News and the Inquirer merged staffs back in 2016. And now the column runs in both the Philadelphia Daily News and the Philadelphia Inquirer. And we like to say that the cloud column covers elections from president on down to ward leader in South Philadelphia with the same sort of attitude. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, the cloud column uh, is sort of, it's a bit of sleight of hand in that it's written almost in a gossip style, a gossip column style, but it is, um, but it's explanatory journalism that way. Uh, We use that sort of approachable language to explain to people how things really work in politics, why things happen, when and how they do, mm-hmm. what it means, what the motivations behind things are. It's just a it's it's a good way um, to broaden an understanding of a very particular kind of politics, which is you know, Philadelphia and Pennsylvania at, at large. Uh, and I like to say that the uh, cloud column has two audiences. Uh, those who are plugged in but want to hear what's going on and those who want to plug in and understand how things work. And then the rest of the week, uh, I write, uh, you know, sort of your average breaking news and enterprise political coverage. Uh, I spent most of last year covering the race for governor in Pennsylvania. Uh, We're gearing up this year uh, for 
what will be a Senate race, which will be nationalized because of, you know, each party wanting to take or keep control of that chamber. Uh, and then, of course, um, Pennsylvania as a swing state will be um, front and center in the presidential election. Without a doubt. I mean, without a doubt. I mean, it's every campaign has to go through Pennsylvania, right? And and really, to some degree, through the it's a it's the battleground that really everybody is fighting for. And it to me feels like one that while a lot of the Northeast uh, has really sort of gone in one direction, it's still very much uh, movable and changeable, and depending on the issues in the state. Yeah, I mean, if you look at just the last couple of months, I mean, we had Ron DeSantis here at uh, a famous sort of Republican-leaning establishment place called the Union League that drew a lot of protests outside. Uh, I was back at the Union League on Tuesday because Vivek Ramaswamy was there. Mm -hmm. uh, so we had him in today's clock column. Uh, but yeah, it's um, um, they're coming through. I mean, there's no, no mistake in why Joe Biden came back here, you know, to make sort of his first public appearance on the campaign trail with the AFL-CIO. He launched his last campaign surrounded by labor support in Philadelphia. So Joe came home. It's so it's so fun to watch. And it's such a still very much a retail politician, retail politics uh, state where people are out and about shaking hands. I mean, the, the clout column, obviously, the way you the way you described it is really great because it's exactly the way I read it as a um, as a guidebook, but also sort of very conversational conversation where people can learn a little bit, but also sort of straightforward. Right. So there you don't have to really go back and sort of look up what it is that happened in the past. You really lay it out very easily for folks. And I think that that's a good thing. So much of what you do, Chris, is um, it's really important always to have that perspective about the past too, right? So much of our work is, you know, everybody's sort of breathless about how things are right now. But the truth is, is that if you look back in history, there have been times and moments that have also been maybe not quite as uh, contentious, but certainly there's been contention and other activity. And to me, it seems like you've got that long almanac, that long history of politics and the way it works in the state that really sort of helps people sort of cut through some of the day to day and really understand sort of historically how that works. Yeah, there's an institutional knowledge component to it for sure. I mean, we a column that ran a couple of months back was about uh, people who have run for public office in Philadelphia while under indictment, uh, and it went all the way back to Abscam. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, more than a few of those people won office while in under indictment. The um, the the reason for that column was that. Um, uh, a Philadelphia city councilman who had won easily won re-election while under federal indictment had just reported to federal prison. Oh, wow. And I have to believe too, that, that political columnists and political writers are going to look to your work that you do in Philadelphia. Cause so many of the Northeast States, and it's not just the Northeast. I mean, there's plenty of States. All, I like to think New Jersey and the Northeast is the edgiest of all, but the truth is, is that every state has their own long list of corruption and other things. It's part of the politics that, that uh, it is, but it seems to me like having that kind of historical perspective is especially relevant now with the indictment of the former president and sort of what does that mean? How does that play? What do you take away, and this is not really a conversation about politics as much as it is, it is about history, How, what do you take away from what kind of impact you think that would have over the course of time? Like, have you prognosticated, I mean, the truth is, is we're just, we're looking into the very murky crystal ball, but what's your point of view on that kind of? 
I think Donald Trump is odds on favorite to be presidential nominee next year. I think um, I think that he was right on target when he said in was either late 2015 or early 2016 that he could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue and not lose any votes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't see anybody breaking through. Uh, and he has the remarkable political capacity to turn problems into assets. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't see, I mean, I think Chris Christie's going to do the best job out there of being critical of him. I don't, you know, I, I'm very curious to see whether Chris Christie and Donald Trump actually share an early debate stage um, because that's all risk for Trump and all reward for Christie. Right. Uh, and I think that, you know, I mean, Donald Trump has been known to back out of a debate uh, and then do something else, some, some sort of counter programming that he declares a victory. <laughs> and for the audience that matters to him, that that works. Yeah. Uh, and so I think we may see that here. Yeah. And it's interesting to me about, you know, when we look at sort of how there continues to be more and more candidates that get into the race uh, and everybody's trying to brand themselves as something different, new and fresh, when in fact it's a lot of the same stuff again and again. A Christie opening the door and being willing to take a shot seems to have maybe opened the door for Heard in Texas to also be opening yeah. up that lane and so it'll be interesting to see what impact that has. But I, I, if I had a dollar for every time I heard about that Fifth Avenue uh, comment, I mean, we'd be having this conversation over a cocktail somewhere much warmer than where we are today. <laughs> what, do you, what do you make? So, I mean, you've been at this for some time. I'm curious because politics has changed and evolved so much over the course of the last 25, 30 years. If you're looking back, what was... What's some of the your favorite coverage? Some of the some of your favorite races to cover? Is anything that sort of stands out where you're like, well, that was a ton of fun, or you know, that was something I'm especially proud of? On the morning of August first, nineteen sixty six, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I had this conversation with somebody uh, yesterday. I really enjoyed the Republican primary for Senate between Arlen Specter and Pat Toomey in 2004. Uh, that was a great race because it really showed Specter's capacity to slide along the political spectrum like a figure skater. I mean, he was just so fluid on it. Um, I was I actually had this conversation yesterday with somebody who used to work for Spectre. And I mean, if you remember at the time, you know, Pat Toomey was coming at him from the right uh, and uh, Spectre embraced 
then President George W. Bush, he embraced Rick Santorum, who was at the time the other Republican senator from Pennsylvania. He, you know, he went he went hard right uh, in the primary. And I had to write three versions of that story that night. One, which is that Spectre gets squeezed out. The other said Spectre ekes by and the Third, which we wound up running, was too close to call. We can't say. Yeah. Uh, and then the next morning, I saw Arlen Specter in the lobby of the Four Seasons, where it became clear that he had won the primary and was going to move on to the general election for another term. And he moved to the middle of the political spectrum in an instant. Almost everything <laughs> that he had embraced about George W. Bush, yeah. he suddenly had a lot of questions about. And it was it was just a lot of fun to cover and write. It's, uh, I mean, that is a real, it takes a real deft touch to make that happen the way it did. And it was fun now that I, now that you're reminding me about it, it was fun to watch. I don't think it would work today. Um, No, it didn't work for Arlen the next time. Yeah, (laughs) but it worked at that point. It worked there. And we've seen that change happen. Your Senate race last year was, I mean, everybody was talking about it, right? You've got, you had a carpetbagger, that's my word, said the girl from New Jersey, uh, and and a candidate who there were a lot of questions about his health, right? There was a lot of that that was going on. And it was up until the very last days of the election that we were watching to see how and what was going to happen. Um, What's your takeaway from that Senate race? Any sort of lessons learned or things that you think could be applied going forward in 24? Well, it certainly helps to live in the state that you run for Senate from. <laughs> Good point. Um, I mean, I, I interviewed Mehmet Oz a couple of times. Nice guy, seemed knowledgeable, but, you know, you know, did not have a Pennsylvania authenticity about him. Uh, especially when you're going up against a guy like John Fetterman, who is like, He's like a Sheets convenience store come to life. Um, Authenticity so, by a million, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, and obviously the guy who came very close to beating Oz in the primary, uh, had, there were some questions about him, and he's likely to be the establishment pick against Bob Casey Jr. next year. That's Dave McCormick. Mm-hmm. I mean, he does have more Pennsylvania roots. He, You know, he actually did live here as a kid. Um, but, you know, in the end, he was I don't think that it helped him much that he was an extremely wealthy former hedge fund manager from Connecticut. <laughs> I can't imagine how that didn't play well in Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and, then so, and like McCormick, I think, has a very good chance of being the Republican nominee next year. But he's going to be going up against Bob Casey Jr. Yeah, I mean, like that, that is such a brand in Philadelphia or in Pennsylvania. I remember back in, I guess it was 2018 when I was covering Lou Barletta's challenge to Bob Casey and Donald Trump had endorsed Barletta and came to Wilkes-Barre to uh, campaign for him. And they were campaigning at a minor league hockey stadium that um, it, the hockey stadium itself had its own name, but it was located in Casey Plaza, which was named <laughs> for Bob Casey's father, Bob uh, Bob Casey Sr., the right. you know, famous former governor of Pennsylvania. Yeah. So that's a tough brand to get past. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. And then I'm also curious, I always like to ask my political writers and, and friends like you, 
Um, there is a challenge, I think, in in polls in general, like the gathering of sentiment and the gathering of data and information about how an election is going to come together. I talked to Amy Walter, who is with Cook Political. I've talked to uh, Steve Kornacki, like names that you know and have recognized. And they've said the same thing um, about the challenges about polling. I'm curious for someone like you who uses that as sort of a that's a data point, right? But a lot of what you do is really more sentiment. You're in the you're in the fabric. People know you. They talk to you. You probably get a better sense of things than perhaps a poll. But what are you finding in terms of the way that you're gathering information as opposed to before when polls were something that we could really rely on? Now it's a lot different. So my, my curiosity is about um, that data collection and how you see that moving ahead in the future as a, as a tool. Well, I look at all polling now the way people used to look at national presidential polls, which, you know, can tell you sort of the flavor of how people are thinking, but aren't really applicable to the prime presidential primary mm -hmm. um, system, because that's a state by state thing. And, you know, some states have caucuses, some states have primaries, some so states different. have early primaries, some states have later primaries. So I now see polling as sort of one indicator of how the mood is out there, but not necessarily a surefire sense of where the actual electorate is, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of problems with polling. You know, I think you've got people who tend to be older and maybe more conservative who don't trust polls anymore, so don't respond to them. Then you got people who are younger and possibly more progressive who don't simply don't respond to polls or aren't reached by polling firms. Right. Um, so you have to, you have to take these things, you know, take these things as advisories of where things may be going, but not as clear indicators, not, not solid data points. That's right. Although I do think that the polling in the Pennsylvania gubernatorial race last year was pretty much on target. Was there it? were a few, <laughs> the Republican nominee for, um, uh, governor of Pennsylvania, Doug Mastriano, who was about as far right as you can go on the political spectrum. There were a couple polls that he pushed that showed him within a point or two of the eventual winner, Josh Shapiro. It turned out both of those polls were um, completely bogus. Um, they were one of them was a, a was a high school kid in Connecticut who had created a, a fake polling firm with like a logo and a Twitter feed. Just and when I finally figured out. And it wasn't real. He said he was like he was interested in politics and he wanted to see if he created a fake poll, if people would embrace it because it told them what they wanted to hear. Oh and it gosh. turned out the nominee for governor in Pennsylvania embraced it because it was what he wanted. <laughs> this was the data he wanted. Wow. Yeah. I mean, and that's so and to your point, it's like. Are people answering the phone? How are they being reached? How are we how are we catching them? There was questions even when Barack Obama was uh, running whether or not people were uh, reporting out publicly a different position than maybe the way that they were feeling privately because of his African American background. Like there's so many different sort of contours about data collection and polling that uh, I get asked a lot about polls and how I feel about polls, and my response is actually not that different from yours. Is that it's it's good information. Um, but it's not necessarily something that we should be putting a ton of attention on because it, it's hard to gather that kind of information anymore. Um, so I think polling is going to have to reinvent themselves to some degree. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I did last year, one of the ways I approached this was that I kept track of what 538 
and what Real Clear Politics had in their compilation of polls. Uh, and then I, I offered those as links to readers and essentially, you know, said, here's what they say. Take of it what you will, yeah. you know, like make your own, make up your own mind about what it, what it really means. What kinds of trends are you following, Chris? Obviously, you've just got through a pretty busy primary season yourself there in the state. You guys have a busy you're always busy in, in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Um, I'm curious, though, are there trends? Are there new um, contours of campaigns or, or even outreach to the media that you're seeing anything that you're following more closely than maybe you have in the past? So here in Philadelphia, something that we've been tracking all this year and will probably continue to through the general election is that, um, you know, Philadelphia is a democratically controlled city. Uh, Democrats outnumber Republicans seven to one. Uh, but that does not mean that the Democrats are one big happy family. Um, it's very factional here. Uh, and um, in Recent years, we've seen the rise of progressive groups like the Working Family Party, uh, which has been trying to pick off seats. And in fact, the way our city council is structured, there's 17 seats, 10 of them are district seats, seven of them are what essentially citywide seats called at large. And our city charter allows that two of those seats have to be given to candidates who are not of the majority party. Now, for seven decades, that meant there were two set-aside seats for Republicans on uh-huh. city council, two seats that Republicans would always win, right. no matter how, you know, the, the top two Republicans mm-hmm. in the election. But in 2019, the Working Families Party took one of those seats. They, um, they bounced one of the Republicans. Uh, and that second seat uh, that had previously been held by a Republican is now vacant because the Republican who held it is now the Republican nominee for mayor in Philadelphia. Mm. So the Working Family Party is angling hard to pick up that seat and has a fair chance of getting it. Uh, they're, they're looking at some other seats uh, in Philadelphia as well, and that's, crea- that's created tension within the Democratic City Committee, the Democratic Party of Philadelphia, uh, because you have some Democrats who are more correct, progressive wanting to help and support these working families party, mm-hmm. which is by definition a, a, a violation of the Democratic City Committee bylaws. So now you have the Demo- we wrote about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. The Democratic City Committee is now threatening to expel ward leaders or committee people who openly support these more progressive third parties huh. in the general election. Interesting. And part of that is there's been a swing back uh, that we predicted last fall. That you know, progressives had made some uh, in Philadelphia had made some great strides in gaining, um, you know, picking up seats and gaining popularity. And there's almost a like a political pendulum swing back to the center. Mm-hmm. And this feels like part of that. That you know, the the more moderate forces in the city are trying to pick back up some ground that maybe they feel they've lost. That's so interesting. And it's it's interesting to me too because we all this we're sort of talking all the time about the Republican Party and this sort of um, you know the, the, the crisis that they're having in terms of identity crisis and who's with what and what's with who and the old way is not the new way and and et cetera. But there's a lot less conversation about how the Democratic Party also is having some agitation and some change inside of their. Uh, demographic and the the way that their uh, party is thinking as well. And so maybe that's a trend that will 
have to keep a close eye on because perhaps once we have a former president that um, it maybe isn't quite as vocal anymore and taking the oxygen out of the room by for everyone else, there'll be some discussion about how the other party is also having um, some change. That's super interesting. Um, all right. So as we get through, okay, so all day long, you're covering politics, and I'm so grateful for that. But there's also a great debate about the greatest cheesesteak in the city. And I got to ask, as a guy whose father was a uh, in the city government and grandfather was in the city government, uh, you probably have a long history of family loyalty to one or two particular places. So tell us, what's your fave? Okay, so controversial opinion number one is that the cheesesteak is not the best sandwich in Philadelphia. Oh, I think we're going, I think we're headed in the same direction here. I may agree with you here. What's your favorite sandwich? The roast pork sandwich is the sandwich of Philadelphia. Totally and if agree. You to John's roast pork in South Philadelphia, you don't know what you're missing. <laughs> with, the spice, very good with, the, there. with the spicy horseradish, right? You got to get yes, the spicy horseradish. I love it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't make you cry a little, you haven't done it right. <laughs> I love it. I totally love it. All right. So as we get to the end of our 30 minutes, Chris, I'm super grateful for your time. I'm going to call you a dozen times more. We're going to get you back on the uh, on the podcast as we're getting closer to the election. But I'm curious, is there someone else that I should reach out to for a future episode of the show? So in-house, uh, my colleague, Julia Teruso, is she's going to be covering the presidential race. She's going to be our lead reporter. Uh, and she is smart and funny and smart and funny nice uh, so yeah okay uh, and um uh, can i can i do two you can uh, absolutely we make the rules around here so whatever we want to do we just um uh, the inquirer just promoted the columnist uh my former philadelphia daily news colleague stephanie farr uh and stephanie farr has just the absolute handle on capturing the weirdness of Philadelphia, she writes about the city. Uh, and I mean, like for months and months and months, she owned the gritty beat. Uh, and, and always found, <laughs> always found new ways have. to approach it. You know, the, the mask cut from the flyers. Yes, yes, um, yes. No, I know yes, that, but I was going to do a clarification for those people who don't. <laughs> uh, and she's just had a very funny first column about, the city officials that came down from Rhode Island and caused a stir by like making a bunch of demands and the people that they sort of treated badly in Philadelphia, you know, weren't having it. And so uh, essentially um, 74 wrote a column issuing a rival set of demands for Rhode Island and like the Narragansett beer brewery responded. No way. You know, I think she got at least a six pack out of it. At least I hope. That's that's hope, right? Oh, that's hilarious. Well, I'll Julia and Stephanie are now on the list, and I'll I'll reach out to them and let them know that you nominated them. Uh, and right. I'll, I'll say a hefty thanks to my friend Jonathan Tamari, who also was your nominee. Uh, it's what keeps the podcast going and having the conversation. Chris, thanks so much for being with me today. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, another episode of the Friday Reporter Podcast in partnership with PR Daily and coming soon to a platform near you on Big Week Podcasts. See you next week.